when Golda Meir was prime minister of Israel, she was trying to rally support from the United States. So uh, she appealed to uh, Henry Kissinger, who was then the Secretary of State, and she she noted uh, she was appealing to his identity as a as a Jew, um, trying to get some some help from the United States. And Kissinger replied, uh, "Madam, I am first an American citizen, and second the Secretary of State, and third a Jew." And Mayer replied, "Yes, but in Israel we read right to left." So, what is this strange language that goes right to left? The one that we incorporate into the service here at Tikvat Israel, into the liturgy, into the songs, and into the, the Torah service. What is this language of Abraham, Moses, and the prophets? The language that Yeshua knew and read. The language of the modern state of Israel. The language of the Torah and the Mishnah. Of course, I'm talking about Hebrew. Now, I know it goes in the wrong direction. Yes, it has a different alphabet. It actually has an aleph bet. In modern Hebrew, they don't even use vowels. Oy, gvolt. I tried writing the sermon with no vowels, but it, it didn't make sense. Who has time for such a difficult language? Well, today I would like to convince you that you have time for such a difficult language. Now, the Tanakh was written mostly in Hebrew, uh, with a little bit of Aramaic, and the Brit Chadashah was written in Greek. But because of the importance of Hebrew in Judaism, I'll be focusing mostly on that. Uh, so today's message is called, Why Study Hebrew? And a little bit of the question, why study Greek? Why should we devote our time to these ancient languages. This past week, our brothers and sisters in Messiah in the Gentile wing of the Ecclesia are celebrating Christmas, which acknowledges and commemorates that Yeshua was born into the world. Yeshua had a physical body as an infant. He had arms and legs, ears, a heart, brain, eyes, everything that we have. He was incarnated in a body, and not just any body, a body that was part of Israel, descended physically from King David, as it says in Romans 1 verse 3. And Yeshua had a culture, a context, in which he walked the earth and taught as a first century rabbi during Second Temple Judaism. Yeshua had a specific calling to restore Israel, as laid out in the scriptures. But what does the incarnation of Yeshua have to do with Hebrew or Greek? Well, just as Yeshua had a physical body represented by a specific context, so too does the Torah have a body that contains it, represented in Hebrew words. John 1, verses 1 through 2 and verse 14 says, In the beginning, is it, is it up there? All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Thank you, Robert. In other words, Yeshua is the word of God as a person. He had a body that was a vessel for the word. And the vessel for the written word of God is Hebrew. The written word of God is incarnated in the language of Hebrew and a quarter in Greek. That is the vehicle that it came in. And just like Yeshua, Hebrew has a culture, a context, a shape to it. So what are the characteristics of, of Hebrew that give us a better context for understanding the Torah? Well, for one, Hebrew is a concrete, physical language. For example, Israel is not described as stubborn, but stiff-necked. You get the real physical sense of that. If, if your neck is stiff, right? You're, that means you're stubborn. God's covering of grace and protection is expressed with the Hebrew imagery of the shelter of his wings. These, these physical images. It's a language of actions or verbs. And it, and it has three-letter roots where the words that all share that root are all related. So, for example, the, the, the root that spells out rosh is resh, aleph, shin. And that contains all the words that are connected in meaning. So I have a little picture of that. Uh, so there's the word rosh up at the top, resh, aleph, shin. And all of these words are related. So we have rosh means head, like this head, or it could be chief or leader or even beginning. And so all these words are related. We have Rosh Hashanah, or Rosh Hashanah, as we say, uh, the Jewish New Year. We have Rosh Chodesh, um, and we actually have a Rosh Chodesh service. This is a good time to plug that um, every, every new month. Um, we have the word Rishon, which is first, and uh, a whole bunch of others here. Yom Rishon, which means Sunday, the first day, and that is actually, in modern Hebrew, the word for Sunday. Um, and we have uh, Ha'evan Harisha, the cornerstone. So see, all those words are connected in meaning because they share the root, Resh, Aleph, Shin, right? So it's a language um, also where names are connected to identity. Thank you, Robert. So the Torah says that they called him Moshe, Moses, because they drew him out of the water. And this is because the word Moshe sounds like the, the verb masha, which means to draw out. In Psalm 18, verse 16, King David says this. Can we go back? Is there a picture of the Hebrew? There we go. So it says, Yishlach mimarom yikacheni yamsheni. There's the Moshe, that word. Mimaim rabim. So, and this means, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. So, that, that Hebrew word, yimasheni, is the same root as Moses. And it has the same idea, too, right? Moses was saved from death um, out of all the newborn Hebrews and was drawn out of the water, just like in the psalm. Uh, Hebrew is also a language where one word carries with it a number of meanings and nuances in the English language when you translate it. For example, ruach means spirit, it means wind, it means breath. Sheva means seven, but it also means oath, and it implies completion. When you read a translation, you're reading basically the translator's interpretation and theology, which can color a text certain way. 
But when you read it in the original language, you're getting all of the nuances unfiltered. In summary, Hebrew has certain characteristics that mark it as a language. Its physicality, its three-letter root system, which also makes it easier to learn, and its rich connotations. To, stay, to say that the characteristics of Hebrew are not important is to say that the context of Scripture is not important to understanding it. But context is important. My roommate, Jason Rudy, has a shirt from his uh, Bible college days, and on the front it, it says, context is king, and it, had a, it has a picture, I think, of the professor that used to say that. Context is king. Um, in the Messianic Jewish movement, we contend that the environment in which something is found is the key to understanding it. In other words, first century Jewish culture and context are important to understanding the life of Yeshua. Torah is important to understand the new covenant scriptures. Paul's identity as a Jew matters. The story of God's relationship with Israel matters. The election calling in Israel and, and history of Israel up to the present day matters. This is incarnation. That is indwelling context, culture, voice, and language. Hebrew is just like this. The word of God in the flesh, Yeshua, came with a context. And the written word of God, the Bible, came with a context. Hebrew and Hebraic thought. The first reason to study Hebrew is that it is one incarnation of the written word of God. Now we shall explore a second reason. And we will start with the story of Eliezer Yitzhak Perlman, or as he came to be known, Eliezer ben Yehuda. Ben Yehuda was born in 1858 in Lithuania, and he uh, studied Hebrew in the yeshiva. It was only a written language, uh, relegated mostly to ancient texts and synagogue prayers. In fact, it had ceased to exist as a spoken language for more than 1,700 years. Can you imagine that? It's just sort of, no one's speaking it, but it's just in the text. Eventually, Ben Yehuda moved to the land of Israel before it became the modern state of Israel. And this one man, Ben Yehuda, spoke to his son only in Hebrew. So his son was the first native speaker of Hebrew since the early centuries of the Common Era. And uh, Ben Yehuda was working with an ancient language, of course. So when he was repurposing it, he had to uh, update it to make it into a conversational language. So he, there, were, there were no words for some things, some modern things like, like ice cream or omelet or bicycle. So I guess, you know, the ancient Israelites had no need for ice cream. It's very sad for them. But uh, so he took what he could from the ancient Hebrew and he applied it to the current needs of, the, of his time. For example, the word for car in modern Hebrew comes from the word for chariot in, in the ancient Hebrew. And uh, anyway, Ben Yehuda started schools in the Holy Land, and he convinced the Jewish people living there that the holy language of Hebrew should be the language of the Holy Land. And today, because of this one man, there are over five million native Hebrew speakers. One could say that ancient Hebrew was revived after being asleep for many years and given a new purpose as a conversational language. 
No other language has done that, at least to my knowledge. In my opinion, this was a miracle. I, I see a parallel between conversational Hebrew and the Messianic Jewish community. Also, mostly asleep for 1,700 years. Jewish followers of Yeshua were like Hebrew words, waiting to be revived for a purpose, for God's purpose. The Messianic Jewish movement, revived after so many years, now has to be repurposed, just like ancient Hebrew did. Almost 2,000 years of both Jewish and Christian scholarship, theology, history, and interrelationship have occurred since the last vibrant community of Jewish followers of Yeshua. And just like Ben Yehuda did with the Hebrew language, our movement must look back to the first group of Messianic Jews, take into account the millennia of history, and then press forward to our current purpose and calling. So the second reason to study Hebrew is that it's very special, even miraculous, just like the Messianic Jewish movement. The same language that the Torah was written in several millennia ago was repurposed for a brand new nation. Now, I'd like to deviate from my reasons for a moment to share something else about Hebrew. We've talked about how Hebrew is an incarnation of the written word, and uh, the revival of a mostly written language um, makes it very special. But on the other hand, I want to say that Hebrew is not special at all. Some people think that Hebrew is inherently special because it was chosen by God to be his instrument. But I, I believe that there is nothing inherently holy about the Hebrew language, just as there is nothing inherently holy about the children of Israel. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Messiah Yeshua who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Those who are called for a purpose, like the Corinthians of Paul's time, like the children of Israel, like the entire body of Messiah, are not called and set apart because there is something inherently special about them, but precisely because they are weak, because they are dependent on Hashem, because they are lowly and humble. We cannot elevate the language of Hebrew and its letters any more than we can elevate ourselves. Now, there are aspects of Kabbalah, or mystic Judaism, which seek to do that very thing, to elevate the language and the letters of Hebrew above what they're actually saying. They go very deep into the letters and search for hidden meanings 
and rearrange them and, and add up their numerical value and other similar things. Now, a certain amount of this is normal, this intertextual analysis and looking at the numbers. Um, an example of a normal type um, of connection is actually in Matthew chapter 1 in the New Covenant. The genealogy of Yeshua is shown to be in groups of 14. So there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Yeshua. So what is Matthew's point in, in making this? Why the number 14? Well, in Hebrew, you can assign a number to each letter and add up the numbers. So for example, Aleph is 1, Bet is 2, and so on. So doing this for the name David, which happens to be my name, you get Dalid, which is Alphabet, Gimel Dalid, four, right? Vav, which is six, and Dalid, which is another four, which adds up to what? Fourteen, right? So the name of David adds up to fourteen. And Matthew, in his Besora, he is making a connection between the number, the name of David, and these generations that go from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and exile to Yeshua. He's making a connection between Yeshua and King David, right? So why is this more credible? Well, there's already a connection between King David and the Messiah in other parts of Scripture. And the whole, you, could, you can look at the whole of Matthew's Besora. Uh, he's driving home this connection, right? But Kabbalah takes the number system a step further to find hidden connections between words that add up to the same number that may not be related. And it's also believed that the letters themselves and the language of Hebrew have mystical or magical properties. And I think that this is taking it too far. I think it's better to look at Hebrew and at ourselves as just a humble vessel. Corinthians 4 Verses 7, verse 7, this is 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So just as Hebrew is but a simple jar of clay, which was used to carry the unfathomable treasure of the word of God, so we too are simple vessels chosen by grace to carry the good news to a hurting world. And this brings me to a third reason for studying Hebrew. I believe it is part of our identity as a Messianic Jewish synagogue. Literacy in Hebrew is an identity marker of Jewish space. I remember one time uh, I, uh, I locked myself out of my car, and uh, I called a locksmith. And a lot of locksmiths tend to be Israeli. I don't know why that is. But um, anyway, so this Israeli guy showed up to help me out, and I was speaking to him in Hebrew, and he said, oh, uh, you're Jewish. I'll give you a discount. You know, and I, I never told him I was Jewish. He correctly assumed that just because I was using Hebrew. Um, so you see, it, studying Hebrew can even save you money. That's good, a good reason right there. It's also the language of the liturgy that we were using, and it connects us to Jewish communities all around the world right now using the same liturgy and also connects us back many, many generations. Um, it's the language of 
yeah, I said in the language of liturgy, right? I think part of the legitimacy in the Jewish community is, is knowledge of Hebrew. Studying Hebrew is part of Jewish communal identity. You know, the, the anti-missionaries um, in Jews for Judaism, they can, they can go back to the Hebrew text to make their point, right? They can defend their positions because they know Hebrew. What kind of witness is it uh, to the Jewish community if, if we don't know it, right? Knowing the original Hebrew text, it allows us to give a reason for the hope that we have, a reason that will stand up academically and theologically. It's one thing to know what the commentators say, and it's another thing to understand the original text yourself. Now, I know that I've spent most of this time talking about Hebrew, but the New Covenant scriptures are in Greek, which I actually started learning a few months ago. And I, I remember uh, I, I first learned the letters. That's the first thing you learn. And uh, I was so excited. And so I, I, I started reading through um, Matthew chapter 1, which I was referencing earlier, and it's just, it's a genealogy of Yeshua. And I, I recognized the names, and I was so excited. I was like, I can read this. I can read the scripture in the original language. It's very exciting. Um, and it, there's really nothing like it. Um, and I, I would encourage you to, uh, to uh, experience that for yourself. Um, one of the most important and oldest translations of the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, is actually in Greek. It's known as the Septuagint, which is the answer on one of your blanks, if you're still following along. In fact, when the writers of the New Covenant quote the Tanakh, most often they use the Septuagint, which makes sense. They're writing in Greek, and so they use a Greek text to do that. One of the reasons that the New Covenant writers chose to write in Greek is that it was a common language, one that would have been widely understood, and this made their text more accessible to the world, including the Greek-speaking Jewish world, a common vessel for a holy purpose again, just like Hebrew and just like us. Furthermore, a lot of the reasons I gave for learning Hebrew also apply to Greek. This is the vessel in which God gave us the Messianic writings or the New Covenant. It, too, has a cultural background and context and style, and this can affect the theology in the text. Um, a few months ago, a friend of mine in the church mentioned uh, the verse in Acts 11, verse 26. And it says, in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And he argued, he was saying that that meant that from that point on, Christianity departed from Judaism. And they no longer considered themselves Jews, but they were called Christians. So, uh, and I, I wasn't really familiar with that. So I, I went and looked up the Greek words in this verse, and I looked up where they appeared in other verses, and it turns out that this word that they use is extremely rare, and it's, it, it occurs two or three times, and it's almost exclusively used as an outsider word, not, not for what the followers of Yeshua would have called themselves. So, in other words, the context of the language means that this verse is not describing a new identity for Messianic Jews as Christians. Language turns into theology, and I think we should be able to defend ours. In the textbook that we're using for our Greek class, which I'm taking at MJTI, and I want to put in a plug for that, I highly recommend it, um, we're learning the grammar 
And we're, we, but we also learn how the grammar and noun endings, these simple things, can have big effects on the meaning and theology of the text. And the author, um, his name is Bill Mounts, he sprinkles these insights in there to keep you, to kind of encourage you um, along the way. So you're not just learning noun endings and you're like, oh, what's the point of this? But he shows how it matters in the text. So in conclusion, I would like to encourage you to study these languages, especially Hebrew. Is Hashem knocking on your heart to teach or learn these languages here at Tikvat? Harumi said, she's downstairs right now, but she said it was okay if I referred you to her and she would take down your name if you're interested in teaching or learning Hebrew. I would love to see our, 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 our level of Hebrew literacy raised in our congregation. Many in our, many in our community have already taken Hebrew at MJTI, myself included. How great would it be to have a whole congregation of Hebrew scholars? What do you guys think? Yeah? So why should you learn Hebrew? Three quarters of the Bible is written in biblical Hebrew. It is the incarnation of most of God's word. And modern Hebrew is the miraculous revival and repurposing of an ancient language. Both serve as identity markers of the Jewish people. And not only that, it's a lot of fun to learn Hebrew.